0: In fact, I want to pray for them right now as I pray for uh, this morning's message. Father in heaven, if we fail somehow to understand our moment and the significance of these days, Lord, we will have missed our moment. Lord, we pray now that you would help us to uh, seize the day, Uh, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, to declare the good news of Jesus, the coming of the kingdom, and the hope of the gospel. Lord, I pray you'll bless uh, Jen and Jeremy and Eric and all who work with them to give a clear and uh, powerful witness to the truth. Lord, the speakers, the musicians, all who are going to be there. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, I'll be talking about a flood of a different kind this morning as uh, I continue this series through the Old Testament. And the opening words of this text are some of the most ominous and unsettling in all the Bible. Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 5. Now, the Lord observed the extent of the wickedness of all the people. And he saw that all of their thoughts were consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them. It broke his heart. And God said, I will completely destroy the human race, that I've created. Yes, I will wipe out the animals and the birds, too. I'm sorry I ever made them. How's that for ominous? Then the next line. But Noah found favor with the Lord. This is the history of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless man living at that time, and he consistently followed God's will and enjoyed a close relationship with Him. He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the world had become corrupt in God's sight. It was filled with violence. So God observed all this corruption in the world, and He saw violence and depravity everywhere. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. Yes, I'm going to wipe them all from the face of the earth. Make a boat from resinous wood and seal it with tar inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Make it 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Construct an opening all the way around the boat, just 18 inches below the roof. Then put three decks inside the boat, bottom, middle, and upper, and then put a door in the side. Look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy all living things. Everything on earth But I solemnly swear to keep you safe in the boat with your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring pairs of every kind of animal, a male and a female, to be in the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of each kind of bird and each kind of animal, both large and small, will come to you to be kept alive. But remember... Bring enough food for your family and all the animals. So Noah did everything exactly as the Lord had commanded him. And this is the word of God. This was not the way it was supposed to be in the world, right? God made it good. He made it excellent in every way. C.S. Lewis has imagined the lion Aslan singing the world into existence. John Piper has tried to imagine what this creation singing would sound like. Look around you and think, what would it sound like to sing this world into existence? These are Piper's imaginings. I hear the booming of Niagara Falls mingled with the trickle of a mossy mountain stream. I hear the blast of Mount St. Helens mingled with a kitten's purr. I hear the power of an East Coast hurricane and the barely audible puff of a night snow in the woods. And I hear the unimaginable roar of the sun, 865,000 miles thick, 1,300,000 times bigger than the earth, and nothing but fire, 1,000,000 degrees centigrade on the cooler surface of the corona. But I hear this unimaginable roar mingled with the tender, warm crackling of logs in the living room on a cozy winter's night. Try it out for yourself. What would the song sound like? It would be extraordinary. It would be amazing. So naturally, naturally, it should be of no surprise to us that if something this good, this exquisite, this majestic, this beautiful, were to suddenly become corrupted and and filled with violence and, and depravity everywhere, of course God will judge it. Harshly, but in a very interesting way. God judges by confirming us in the choices we've made. Go back to the text says, now the world had become corrupt. The Hebrew here is literally, the world had become destroyed. So what did God decide to do? He said, I will destroy what's been destroyed. That's literally the Hebrew there. In other words, I will destroy what's already been destroyed. My punishment will correspond to and be the natural outcome of what's already been done. This is what the Bible means when it said God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God simply did to Pharaoh what Pharaoh had been doing to Pharaoh all along. And finally he said to Pharaoh, as he will say to us sometimes, okay, that's what you want, that's what you want to be, that's what you'll be. And So God judges harshly what's corrupted and depraved and marred the beautiful thing that he's made. Well, this passage raises some sobering questions, doesn't it, about our future and our present. Jesus said the end will be like the days of Noah. Luke chapter 17, verses 26 and 27. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. What was it like then? Jesus describes it. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. That's what it'll be like at the end. Business as usual. This one day, like all the others, 8.45 on a Tuesday morning. It comes that way. It comes unexpected. And Soren Kierkegaard wrote a parable about the end of the world. He said, It happened that a fire broke out backstage in a theater. The clown came out to inform the public. They thought it was just a jest and applauded. The clown repeated his warning. They shouted even louder. So I think the world will come to an end amid general applause from all the wits who believe it's just a joke. One day it will be as in the days of Noah. Well, that's sobering about our future, but it's sobering about our present, isn't it? What has been the greatest killer in this century? It's not disease. It's not even famine. It's not war, even. It is the activities of governments exterminating their own people. Estimates of upward to a hundred and 20 million people have been killed by governments trying to make their people get in line. Well, what does God, what does God confirming people in their choices have to do with all this? And what are we to make of the events of September 11th and following? What does God, confirming people in their choices, have to do with this? I don't know. I'm not smart enough and I'm not brave enough to speak with any authority. But I think there's something even more important for us here. And it's not so much figuring out what this time means as it is coming to understand. Why God judges sin. And why he does it so harshly. And I want to tell you why this morning. It's because of what he sees. He sees two things. He sees, first of all, the full extent of sin. Only God can see this. And God sees that sin is comprehensive. Listen to the text again. Now, the Lord observed the extent of the people's wickedness, and He saw that all of their thoughts were consistently and totally evil. Now, the world had become corrupt in God's sight. It was filled with violence. God looked at this corruption, and all He saw was violence and depravity. He said, I've decided to destroy everything because evil is everywhere. God sees the extent, and only God can see the extent, of sin. He sees that it touches every aspect of our personality. He sees that our depravity is total. Which is not to say we're totally bad, but that the evil in us reaches to every dimension of our personality. I don't know about you, but I tend to see sin as a kind of lapse, uh, a gap in my character, a... a weakness that I need to overcome, God sees it otherwise. He sees it as blood poisoning for the soul. It doesn't take a lot for it to course through every organ, every bone, every neuron, and to corrupt it. That's what sin does. Its extent is total. And even the best things we do. And if you're thoughtful about this, you'll know this is true. Even the best things we do are tainted by sin. Edward John Carnell said, even the cup of cold water I give you in the name of Christ has my dirty finger sticking in it. We can't escape it. And appearance is notwithstanding, sin doesn't lead to death. Sin is death is death. It's comprehensive. I have a picture to give you here of what God sees, or at least the kind of thing that God sees. And it's one of those things I I wondered if I should give because it's, it's a bit of a gross out. But, but it was written by George Orwell, so well, do with it what you will. But you won't forget it that one day he was eating breakfast and uh, enjoying his tea and his toast and his jam, and a wasp landed on the jam and began to eat it. And Orwell said he reached over casually with his knife and he cut the wasp in half. And to his horror and surprise, the wasp kept on sucking the jam as it ran out his esophagus and did not realize what had happened to it until it tried to fly. That's sin. And if that picture is, ooh, well, it is, ooh, but it is no more, ooh, than the lies we tell, the adultery we commit, the greed that drives us, it's self-deception. It is to us what that knife is to a wasp. And God sees that. That's why he gets so upset. It's not that God is a sort of a peevish uh, deity with, with a short fuse. It's that he sees what sin does. It's consistently bad. It's totally evil. It corrupts. It ruins things. It ruins people. And so he deals harshly with sin because he sees its extent. And the message of Noah and his flood is nothing else. It's that. But there's something else that God sees. And this may be the hardest part for us. God and only God sees the gravity of sin. That's because God is a holy God. And only holiness can know what unholiness is. Now, let's think about this. It's it's sort of like w- w- the reason you don't ask a fish what the water's like, right? Well, the fish is in it. He can't know what it's like. And when it comes to evil, we really can't know what evil's all about because we're in it. And once you're in it, it takes you over. It, the effect of sin is to numb the senses, not heightened them. For centuries, it was thought that leprosy was a disease of decay, that it simply caused fingers and hands and noses and ears to, to rot and fall off. And it was Paul Brand in this century who learned that leprosy is not a disease of decay, it's a disease of feeling of numbness and to have leprosy is to lose your ability to feel so you don't know when your hand is put on hot coals you don't realize when your sprained ankle is being forced to climb a hill and you start doing things to yourself because you're numb and things do start rotting and going bad not because the disease makes that it's because you stop feeling it And the upshot of this is don't ask a prostitute about the joy of sex. Don't ask a glutton about the joy of food. Don't ask an alcoholic about fine wines. They know nothing of these things. Don't ask a sinner about how bad sin is. Because part of what it means to be a sinner is to not know what it means to be a sinner. And the rule of hell is to create in us an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. You want more and more of what satisfies less and less. Did you know that's why the medieval artists would paint demons with horns and tails and ugly faces? They weren't naive. They knew that sin was attractive. They knew it looked good, it felt good. But they wanted people to know that beneath the pleasure, just behind the good looks, there were ghouls and vampires and torturers. And they weren't out to take your money and run. They were out to take you and run. And they eyed you as food, as prey. You can't know the evil of evil by doing evil, but by knowing good. And the Bible says this of God. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Only God, who is pure, can know how bad evil is. And when God looks at it, He recoils. He's he's upset. He's shocked by it. And it's not because He's naive and has never seen it before. It's because He's God. He's holy. He's pure. Now... is the hardest part of this message. I want to make the case for hell. Now, we all know that the doctrine of hell is an embarrassment to so many modern Christians. Why? Well, because it seems like a bit of an overreaction, doesn't it? Excessive, that that this God would sentence to eternal desolation and separation people who simply don't give him his due. Again, he sounds peevish, doesn't he? He sounds a little egotistical, that he would do such a horrible thing for eternity to people who do nothing more than simply reject him. Well, let's think about justice for a moment. And most theories of justice the punishment should fit the crime. Now think for a moment. What is the worst crime manageable? Don't think too long or too pictorially, but for me it's it's a, it's a child tortured and murdered. And to apprehend the perpetrator of that kind of crime and then to bring justice on them, it seems to me that that the punishment should be the the absolute worst that society can allow. It it just just would not be right. And maybe if you're like me, you've thought thoughts about terrorists recently, that they ought to get everything that can possibly be given to them. But whatever, whatever our sense of the worst crime is, we, people tend to agree, in most cultures, they tend to say, yeah, the punishment ought to fit the crime. So what makes torturing and killing a child so bad, really? Well, I'll tell you what makes it so bad. That child is precious because the God who made her is infinitely more precious. Now, again, we're sinners. We have a hard time with this. This is tough for us to project out into the sky somehow, to, into some spiritual dimension, something we love and we, we, we adore and we revere and say it's good only because the God who made this person is good. And to reject the maker is to reject something even more precious than the creature. You don't ask the fish what water is like, and it's hard for sinners to understand how good how utterly good God is only God knows how good he is and God sees the gravity of sin and he deals with it harshly well the last word in this story is not about a flood or hell but about This God's amazing graciousness in giving an escape from what everybody deserved. The last word is that a man found grace in God's eyes and that God provided an ark with this promise to keep him and his family safe in the ark. But even this is not the last word because there would come a time there would come a time when God would be even harsher with sin. Now you're thinking, wait, what could be more harsh than wiping out all living creatures? The harshest thing God ever did to sin was to become a man and let the full justice of His holiness come down on His Son. Like the song says, uh, God is an awesome God, and we saw judgment at Sodom. We saw mercy on the cross. That's not exactly right, folks. At the cross, we saw justice and mercy completely. The harshest thing, the harshest blow God ever dealt sin, was when His Son agreed to die in our place. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You think the flood was bad? The cross was worse and infinitely better. Well, I close with this. It's a song, and I apologize in advance for singing it to you because uh, I'm not a great singer. But you just you have to sing songs, all right? You just don't quote songs. It's an old gospel song. And what stood out about this song was its uh, it's taking the flood of Noah and turning it on its head and making the flood the flood of God's mercy that's the flood that matters oh Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, don't ever cease to be amazed that you haven't gotten what you deserved, but that Jesus did. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I feel the uh, great gap between what I'm able to say and who you are. O oh, Holy Spirit, take my feeble attempt to describe something. Make it alive and real. And every heart, especially any of us, who may have grown cold and blase about the miracle that's given us life. For he who had no sin was made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. Go with the peace of Christ.